everybody. This is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. And I have Samantha with me today from the Tennessee Student Nurse Association. Not only from the Tennessee Student Nurse Association, but she's the president. Hey, Madam President, how are you? <laughs> hey, Tina. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for coming on. I think this is really cool because there are a lot of nursing students that listen to this podcast, and I think it's neat for them to, to get to hear you. Just kind of maybe chat a little bit about your experience and maybe even let them know if they're not a part of their student nurse association, maybe give them a little bit of insight into what they could expect and why it might be a good idea for them to get involved if they can. You know, people are so busy in nursing school that sometimes it's hard. Yeah. It's hard to do one more thing. But I thought maybe I'd give you a chance to kind of talk about that a little bit before we get into our bad doctor story. We have a bad oncologist and a good oncologist today, but we'll get into that later. So Sam, tell them a little bit about being in this Student Nurse Association and then, you know, being on the, you know, being the president and that sort of thing. What's involved in all that? Yeah. So there's a few different levels to being involved with uh, Student Nurses Association. So there's your local chapter level and then the state level and then the national level. So you can get involved at any level, but starting out with your local level is great. And part of the reason that I got involved with the organization is because I was really passionate about just improving and enriching my nursing school experience and my fellow students' experience. So our local organization, what we do is we try and bring in different types of nurses and just all different specialties to talk to us and give us a little bit more insight on some things that maybe in nursing school you don't get much of a chance to learn about. For example, in my program, we didn't spend a whole lot of time on oncology, but our association brought in an oncology nurse. And so we got to hear more firsthand what her floor nursing looks like instead of, it's not something we get in the clinical setting. So being able to hear from all different nurses and things like that just has really, really enriched my nursing school experience. And so that's a big part of why I got involved. But more than that, we do work from like kind of a legislative standpoint and develop resolutions that help further some of our interests with our local legislators and things. So at our last convention, we passed resolution that had to deal with education for nurses on recognizing victims of sex trafficking. So just things like that, just to improve improve nursing school for the students and uh, makes everyone's experience a little bit better. Well, I think it's wonderful. I know how difficult it is for, for nursing students to get involved in anything other than nursing school because it's so hard and there's so much, there's just so much to do. There's clinicals and tests, obviously, to study for. And, excuse me, and many times people are trying to work um, also, which is, I don't even understand how, but so some people may feel like they don't have time, but if you do, uh, if you could even get involved in a, a small way, you know, just go to the convention or go uh, to a meeting, maybe every other meeting or yeah, something like absolutely. that. absolutely. It's really nice to feel like you're making a difference and feel like you're kind of a part of a, of a group, you know, connected with everyone. It's sometimes when you, especially when you first start working as a new grad and you you're kind of like out there kind of struggling. It's you 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 know how hard it's going to be but then you're really living it yeah. and it can get discouraging and sometimes not every time not everyone has that experience but it can it is that way for a lot of people. Yeah. You know, so this is a way for you to not only kind of have a connection with other nurses but to feel like you have a voice and you can make a difference. Absolutely. You can tell, you can, everyone get together and talk about what's going on and make a difference and make changes, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, definitely. 
Yeah. And I think it, it helps prepare you for involvement at hospitals, you know, where you can be involved in groups on your floors or even larger if you're in a, you know, in a larger hospital setting and getting involved on committees and things, you already have um, a little bit of background, like a practice run kind of. So it just makes that easier if that's something you're interested in. Exactly. And that as, again, being, when you are working at the hospital, sometimes people are like, I don't have time. I, I work, you know, 36 hours a week or however many, sometimes more. And I don't want to be at the hospital any more than I have to be. But if you can kind of put yourself out there and see it rather than see it as some chore that you have to do, but see it as a, a way that you're trying to make a difference and, um, and be connected to your coworkers, it can really enrich your experience as a nurse. Yeah. And it's really can be a really good positive thing. And you would be surprised, especially if you work at a magnet institution where nurses really do have a voice um, in, in what goes on, you really can see changes being made. And you can, it's just neat. I yeah. mean, it really is. So well, that's cool. I'm really glad that you're here and people get to kind of hear a little bit about that. Yeah. So I if you guys are listening and you have any questions, you can definitely message me and I can get them back to Samantha. And if you're listening and you're part of a student or association in another state, and maybe you have a different experience or it's, I don't know, just um, another perspective that you could offer, send me a message. I would love to hear about it. So we can get talking about this bad oncologist. I can't even believe it. It's just, <laughs> oh, it's the most disgusting. Yeah. Gosh, it's like... This story, when I found it and was reading it, I was just like, this can't, this can't possibly be reality. There's no way right. that someone would do, would be so bold to do something like this. I'm just shocked, yes. And, you know, looking into the story further and getting deeper and deeper into it, it's just unbelievable what people will do as far as just like once... It's almost like when someone makes a decision to go down a road. Yep. They're going all the way, you know, and that's Mm -hmm. it. Yeah. It, that's the way it is a lot of times. And, you know, if you guys are, you know, out there working, doing your jobs, everyone's in different positions, you know, and there's, uh, integrity is very important as a, a healthcare professional, whether you're a nurse, whether you're a doctor, no matter what you're doing, you're dealing with people's lives. And there's going to be times when you are the one that knows what's going on and the other pe- person doesn't know. And so, you know, you're patient. They don't know. They're trusting you. And that's what happened in this situation. Integrity is doing the right thing when no one else is looking, you know, when you could do the wrong thing and get away with it, but you know this is the right thing. And so you're going to do that, even if it's a difficult thing or whatever. And it's very important to not take that first step, you know, when you um, want to you know, tell a little white lie or maybe fudge the truth a little bit or stretch the numbers, whatever the situation is, try to remember like whatever situation you're in that just pretend that someone's watching, pretend someone's going to be looking over your shoulder if that's what it takes or just, you know, deep in your heart. I don't think you would have gone to medical school or nursing school if you didn't want to, if you weren't a good person right. and want to help people. You would hope. Really? I would hope. That's my hope for everyone I that I work so. with. <laughs> I don't think that, I don't. I just, it's hard for me to believe that people could put themselves through that. Doctors go through so much. Oh my gosh. Just to to get through medical school and the residency, the grueling hours that they have to work the, for very little pay. Right. So I I can't believe that they were always this kind of person, you know? Yeah. 
But having said that, this guy, so this doctor that we're going to be talking about today, his name is Farid Fada, is how I'm going to pronounce it. I don't know. Sounds right to me. I think. Yeah, it, he is from Lebanon, and I, his, it's spelled F-A-R-I-D, and the last name's F-A-T-A. So that's, I think that's how you pronounce that. He uh, was an oncologist and hematologist, and we at the hospital we call that call them hemonks, you know, or we you yeah. know we're going to consult hemonk because those two go hand in hand. He was born in 1965. and was raised in a Catholic family. He got his medical degree in 1992, so he's been around a while. <laughs> and then he came to the United States after he got his medical degree and did his residency in Brooklyn and his oncology fellowship in Manhattan. Sounds like a pretty nice experience. Yeah, you, you would know? think that's a pretty competitive residency and, and mm-hmm. you know, a good place to do your schooling and, and learning. Yeah, it sounds like it. He it says he, he did, uh, he worked as an attending physician in a, at a Pennsylvania hospital. I'm not sure what hospital it was, but there's a, there are a lot of hospitals around there, really nice, you know, hospitals. In 2003, he opened his own practice. So he's kind of moving right along and doing what they have to do. They have to kind of put in their hours and pay their dues. Then they get to open their own practice. And now this is when they start, you know, making, actually actually making money. Right. (laughs) Oftentimes they're heavy, heavily into debt. You know, it's, that's just part of it. Unless they come from a very wealthy family that can afford to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so, Now, here he is opening his own practice in Rochester Hills, Michigan. Very successful practice. It was a very large practice. He had, this practice had its own pharmacy, its own lab, own radiation treatment facility. I mean, I saw that and I couldn't believe that, that he had all of those services under under his branch that he owned. It was, kind of blew my mind a little bit. Yeah. And it's, you know, we've done other stories where the, the doctor kind of went off in left field and and start doing some some wonky things, and a lot of times they it's these situations where they get bigger and bigger and they do start taking on a lot of their own. And I'm like, I don't really understand how that's not conflict of interest, right? To have all of that because having your hand in all of those pies has to just make it easier for things to go a little awry without anyone being able to check you on on what you're doing. Yeah, and I mean, even if he has, I, I don't know how it's set up. I'm sure there has to be some way. It's not just him, you know, standing there writing the prescriptions and then running down to the pharmacy and handing out, the, you know. Right, <laughs> doing everything. But you, know, you would think that that there would be some accountability. But if you own mm-hmm. the practice, if you're the kind, isn't it hard, you know, to sometimes question right. your boss? Right. So I wonder if maybe something like that was going on. So blood cancer was his specialty. He was known for taking an aggressive approach and having a high success rate of cures. I mean, that's that's important. If you are diagnosed with cancer, the, I mean, how devastating is that? Then you want an oncologist or hematologist that has a high success rate. Wouldn't you want to go to them? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I've had some personal experiences with um, family and friends that have had cancer and specifically blood cancer. And yeah, you want to increase your odds. I mean, I think this is an, an incredibly vulnerable patient population that is, I don't want to say desperate, but desperate. You know, given this diagnosis, oh. you want 
to do everything you can to give yourself the best chance of getting into remission and staying there. So yeah, I know those odds are important and it's just, this guy is bad news. (laughs) Yeah, there's no doubt about it. This is not the person that you want in a position like this with so much power Mm -hmm. over people who are so vulnerable and just and desperate. Yeah. Yeah, That was the perfect way to put it. In 2007, so this is just a few years after he opened his own practice, some people started smelling something stinky, as as my assistant put it when she typed up these men. I love it. It's accurate. (laughs) I think it's hysterical. So there were a few things that just weren't right. To begin with, he was sued for malpractice by a former patient. Her name was Maggie Dorsey. She was diagnosed by FADA back in 2004 with cancer. Okay, he opened his practice in 2003, I think. 2003, and we're talking about a year later? Yeah, 2003. So within a year, this um, one of his patients comes along and says that she went under uh, underwent multiple rounds of chemotherapy that affected her ability to walk, and then later ended up getting a second opinion and learned that, in fact, she didn't have cancer. And then that case was settled in 2009, like five years later. So this, you know, it's not like he was in practice for years and then maybe just started going off, you know, the path a little bit or started fudging things a little bit. This was right after he started his practice. Very uh, just unsettling and, and and confusing to me. I don't even understand it. Then in 2010, a nurse who was a veteran oncology nurse, her name was Angela Swantek. She went to MHO, which is the oncology group that it was his oncology group. She went there for an interview. And immediately she knew that the practices that were going on were wrong. As soon as she walked through the facility, she, her experience told her that something was not right. I mean, that tells you right there, if, if a nurse just walking through for an interview sees things that are just... Not, not right. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's scary that she was able to go through and, you know, immediately there were a lot of red flags, it sounds like, and, and you got to wonder how it just continued for so long. Oh, that's what I'm wondering. So she did believe he was giving his patients drugs that they didn't need just so that he could bill the insurance companies for money to put in his pocket. And she actually complained to state authorities, but didn't get a response until about a year later that said there was not enough evidence to investigate the matter. So even though she was suspicious um, for whatever reason, and again, story after story, week after week, we come across situations where someone was suspicious of something. Someone was uh, saw something that they didn't think was quite right, and they spoke up, and they did the right thing, and they said something, even if it cost them their job or potentially, you know, could cost them their job. And then nothing is done about it. It's discouraging. It's, <laughs> it's very discouraging. Yes. And it, it just it makes you wonder is— you know, what has to happen in order for something to be done and for, for things to change. So another former patient of his, Monica Flagg, was diagnosed with multiple myeloma in 2013. 
So after receiving the first uh, chemo dose, she broke her leg in two places. So this is this is interesting because this woman is just now diagnosed with cancer. Then she, in a, in a completely unrelated accident, happens to break her leg. And he was on vacation at the time that this happened. So all of this stuff is just the perfect storm. For him, it was not good because it just kind of brought everything to light. Because when this happened, a colleague of his who also worked there at the, at the HMO clinic went to the hospital to cover for him because anytime a patient is admitted into the hospital who's under the care of a physician like this, a specialist, the hospitalist is going to contact that. Well, most, most, most of the time, right. they're going to contact that doctor and say, hey, just letting you know your patient is here on this, for this incident. And a lot of times that specialist will say, oh, okay, I'll come by. And, and they'll come by and see them. And they'll just, I've, I can't tell you how many times I've been taking care of a patient and someone from a different specialty who you don't see ever. And it's like some person that you're like, I have no idea. Because you get to know the doctors. Right. So, And it's really weird. And they come in and you're like, oh, who is this person? And they're just like, I was just coming by to see you. And you can tell they have a, a close relationship with the patient because they're used to seeing them on a re- right. regular basis. Uh, and it's just, it's, and you can tell those doctors aren't real comfortable in the hospital. You know, they're not like the doctors that work there all the time that are just like, used to being there right. and comfortable just coming to the, I don't know, it's just different. So that's what happened here. And this doctor who was on call covering for Fada while he was on vacation, went to the hospital, just saying, hey, just check in, make, you know, see what's going on. And he looked over her lab results, which is interesting because, I mean, why would you do that? I don't know. Right. Maybe he seems a little started. thorough for, for mm-hmm. the situation, but. For what he was doing. Yeah. I mean, he. You know, um, it's just kind of covering for him. It, it's not like she was there for some sort of an exacerbation because of the cancer. Right. But I guess he's just being really thorough. He's like, oh, I'm just going to check the labs. And then maybe he saw the labs and he's thinking, what? I'm not sure what's going on because she only had just gotten chemo for the first time. There's no way her labs could be this normal. Right. So that was a huge red flag for this doctor. The numbers and levels were too normal for the the type of, of patient that she was, the type of cancer that she had, her having just been diagnosed and only receiving one uh, dose of chemo. And that was a, a huge turning point for Fada's future because he went back and reviewed charts of other patients. And... Um, well, he went back and looked over her chart more thoroughly and just said, okay, I really could not see any reason for her to have been getting chemotherapy at all. And so then he reported the incident and then later told the Detroit News that myeloma can start with minor changes in blood chemistry, minor enough that a dishonest doctor can use chemotherapy to avoid detection. So... I guess what he's saying is if a doctor wants to be dishonest, if you have even um, just for whatever reason, you can have some elevated levels of, of, you know, in your blood. So if you have just a little uh, wonky lab uh, result, the doctor can then take that and just be like, oh, you need, um, oh, you've got cancer, you need chemo, give you chemo. Then all of a sudden your labs look better. Oh, the chemo worked. So... How sad is that, that you can't trust someone in this situation? Yeah. 
And these are people that, you know, I mean, again, these patients are desperate and vulnerable and you're going in there laying everything bare and expecting that your physician is honest and is going to follow the oath that they took, you know, in med school to do no harm. And that is definitely not what we have going on here. Oh, for sure. This doctor, his name is Dr. Monglay. I don't know if I even said that, but he he went to Monica Flagg, that patient, the, the next day, and he told her that she did not have cancer. Can you imagine? <laughs> oh, my goodness. He told her, you need to go to another doctor immediately. I can't even imagine getting this no. these news. I, I, I think I would probably be doubting it. Yeah. You know, a lot. Of, I would probably be thinking something's wrong. The lab work was probably wrong. There's no way this doctor would have said you know, started giving me chemo. Right. Um, I don't think I would have believed it unless, until I did get to this yeah. completely, you know, different doctor. Because it's, it's like too good to be true. You've, you've been set up in the situation that's horrible. And then, you know, a couple weeks or something later, you're told probably the best news ever, you don't have cancer. And how could it be, you know, and you've got to wonder, she, you know, every doctor she sees now, does she doubt what they're telling her? You know? Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure she would. Yeah. There's, I can't, I don't see how you couldn't yeah. really. I mean, this this doctor estimated that if she had just for whatever reason waited a couple, oh, she hadn't broken her leg. Mm-hmm. You know, at that at when she did, if it had just been a couple months later, and for some reason another doctor had seen her, she would have appeared to be in remission right. because it would have been like, oh, you've been getting chemotherapy for two months, right? So. He also said that she looked a lot healthier on paper than a typical mm-hmm. myeloma patient. So the insurance payments would continue flowing to to FADA for the rest of his life. Right. Because, you know, they're going to follow her. Yeah. She's going to keep coming back for, for follow-up because it's just insane. It's, yeah. it's ridiculous yeah. to put someone through that. Because the chemo drugs are no joke. I mean— they are very serious, high-risk, high-side-effect drugs. And so to put someone through that that doesn't need it is just, I can't imagine how this guy did it to not just one patient, but so many, and how he could live with himself afterward. It, I don't I don't know how in the world he would sleep at night. <laughs> I, it's just, it blows my mind. Dr. Monglay went through many more patient records at a, uh, MHO and found more evidence of fraud and unnecessary treatments on patients. He left the practice, of course, and later took his evidence to the news. So in the meantime, there's an office manager there. His name is George Koresha. I, I'm terrible with names, but it's, it's spelled K-A-R-A-S-H-E-H. Do you think that's how you I think it? that sounds good. It's better than Koresh. I could do, but I will say the story is filled with like probably the hardest names I've seen in a while. <laughs> I know. I'm just like, oh, these people. I, I hate, I don't want to get people's names wrong, but I don't know what else I'm supposed to do. But he, so this office manager, you can imagine they are in a little different situation because a lot of times, you know, they might not even be medical. Sometimes they are. Right. Maybe they're a nurse that's gone back and gotten their administration master's or something like that. Or, but a lot of times they're not yeah. medical. So, but he starts getting suspicious because multiple doctors are leaving the practice and not really giving an explanation as to why. So it doesn't make a lot of sense. And you can, I mean, I would, I would be thinking, what is going on? Right, especially in a practice that 
seem successful. You know what I mean? With all these high care rates and and you got to wonder when people start yeah. fleeing, <laughs> something's not right. That's a, that's a great point. You're just, you'd be thinking, what? This is a very successful practice. Look how wonderful, uh, it's a wonderful place to work. Why would these doctors come and go so quickly? Mm-hmm. So he asked, actually asked Dr. Mongle why he was leaving the practice. And he really was shocked and could not believe what he heard. He conducted his own little investigation by interviewing several staff members. And he recalled that nurses were sometimes uncomfortable with Fada's aggressive treatment plans. So he starts putting all this together. And a few things that he discovered was Fada's treatment to consultation ratio was significantly higher than the other doctors in the office. So, you know, you have several doctors working there. Patients are getting referred to them. They're doing a consultation. Many times patients will come in and doctors, doesn't matter what the specialty is, doctors will look at them and go, this is not, get out of my office, right. wasting my time. You know, because they have their specialty yes. and they know their specialty very well. They, you know, cardiologists, they know about the heart. So sometimes it's, I mean, I'm laughing, but it's kind of funny, but they they know all things heart. Right. So sometimes when like maybe the hospitalist or maybe even somebody from another specialty refers a patient to them and there's just like consult cardiology, they get so frustrated because they're just like, this is not, you know, and yeah. they, it's like, <laughs> it's frustrating to them because they know it so well. Well, the hospitalist, their knowledge is a lot more general, you know, right. they look at things in a much bigger picture. And if they suspect it could be heart related, cardiac related, they're going to consult cardiology. That's your special. You're a specialist for a reason, you know? Right. So I can see this happening. You know, someone, doctors referring patients to Hemonk and them looking at the gonet right. and out the door. But for some reason, Dr. Fada, 38 out of 40 patients the week that he was on vacation, that Dr. Mongley was uh, covering for him, were, were receiving IVIG. It's a very serious treatment for patients to get, and they didn't even need nor qualify for the drug. It's crazy. It's just, oh, it, it, it is ridiculous. I can't even imagine this. It's hard to, like, I don't even understand, like, how do he even go on vacation and leave? I, if you are doing this stuff, how do you, how are you so bold? I know. It's like such a... You know, he must have been so comfortable with his scam at that point that mm-hmm. he felt he could leave and that still no one would notice. Yeah. Well, that office manager <laughs> gathered his evidence and went to the Dagum FBI <laughs> office in Detroit, sued MHO and FADA under the False Claims Act, and FADA was arrested the next day. So he knew exactly how to take care of the situation and get something done, Yeah, which, thank goodness, someone did. Yeah. So federal investigators found evidence that FADA had been deceiving 553 people into getting chemotherapy treatments that they didn't need causing their insurance companies and Medicare to pay $34 million in fraudulent and unnecessary claims. They also found that FADA took kickbacks from two local hospices. Oh, it's disgusting. It's, yeah, I mean, the how corrupt all of this is, is just 
it it just seems to get worse, you know, the more you read into what he's doing, you know, especially like aligning himself with these hospice organizations and the fraud there. It's just disappointing. It's very disappointing. The the oncologists that I've been um had the privilege to be, uh, to know or to work with, they always, um, are so compassionate and just, I just feel like the line of work that they're in, the type of medicine that they do is, it's so, it's just special. And they, and they have to be a special person to be able to do that because literally dealing with case after case after case of extremely sad situations, people having their lives completely turned upside down, and many times having to tell people that there's not anything else they can do. It's just awful. So this is so shocking that someone, you know, would do something like this. He also was uh, pouring Medicare and private insurance proceeds into his own diagnostic testing facility, ordering unnecessary tests, of course, pled guilty in September of 2014 to 13 counts of healthcare fraud, one count of conspiracy to pay and receive kickbacks, and two counts of money laundering. He pled, he pled guilty after looking at possibly spending life in prison or being deported back to Lebanon. So I guess he looked at that and went, well, I'll just plead guilty. There's so much evidence. There's no point, you know, in trying to fight it. So before the judge sentenced him, a bunch of former patients shared how this horrific crime affected their health. And this is just a, a handful of the situations. Robert Sabare, again, I don't know if I'm saying that right. Probably not. Spelled S-O-B-I-E-R-A-Y. Lost all his teeth and developed an uncontrollable twitch. Patty Hester lost all her hair and had newly diagnosed hypertension from the stress of the whole situation. And then um, someone with by the name of, or initial CC, states that she now has problems with her bladder, bowel, and kidneys that are so bad she can no longer perform basic tasks. And those are just a few stories out of all of those people that were affected uh, by this. Because like you said, chemotherapy is no joke. This is, you're literally poisoning the body and you're trying to kill the cancer before you kill their organs, before you shut their kidneys down or, or you know, God forbid, kill them. I mean, that's what it is. How in the world you could do something like that is just, and we did a story a few weeks ago about an ENT who's crazy and doing procedures that he didn't need to do and affected people horribly. And, and I don't, I mean, even if he could justify that, I there's no way you could justify giving somebody chemotherapy. No way. Just, it's all, when it's, complete fabrication and you know there's mm -hmm. absolutely no basis for it it's just unacceptable horrible well he was sentenced to 45 years in prison which is basically a fourth of what the prosecution was seeking his earliest release would be october 19th 2052 so <laughs> it's pretty good so Quite a ways in May, down the road <laughs> so right now of course we're right in the middle of the covid-19 um situation so i I started recording this podcast a couple of years ago, so we've been around for two years. So I, th I think in a few years, this hopefully this will all be over with, and and people, when I say what I'm about, I'm about to reference COVID, they may some people may be listening to it and go, "What are they talking about?" I hope, I hope, so. I really hope, I really hope so. <laughs> that would be great. Yes, I hope that's true. 
Man, I do. So this, we are in May of 2020, and he just tried to seek a compassionate release because of the COVID pandemic. He told his lawyer that he has serious health conditions that place him at high risk. So federal prison officials have released over 1,000 inmates to home confinement to help reduce the spread of COVID-19. But I just checked, and just as of a couple of days ago, it has still not been uh, there, there was literally um, an article from the Department of Justice that said that they had not, it was still pending. They had not decided whether or not they were going to let him out. I really hope that they don't because I yeah. don't, just that would be such a uh, slap in the face to the his victims. Yeah, especially since he's caused serious health conditions for yeah. others, for his patients. You know, the fact that he's pleading to try and get out of this, you know, out of his punishment for what he's done is is just that blows my mind that he it feels like he still thinks he's above some kind of law you know basic human decency you know it just I can't even believe that he would try to get out of prison already exactly I mean he had no problem giving people chemotherapy lowering their immune system so that they would be more susceptible to something like COVID-19 or anything yeah so I don't know why in the world he would think that anyone should consider that, you know, he is for some reason at, at a higher risk at, at, you know, than other inmates that are there. Yeah. But I don't know how that's going to play out. It's, um, but he's in prison now. Yeah. I'll probably keep my he, eye on it now that, <laughs> now that I yeah, know. I will know, too. I wanna, I wanna I'm going to also, because I'm just, I'm kind of curious about it. He did he did try to appeal. You know, there there are always appeals, right. but that was denied. He was he was denied. He tried to do the appeal that was like on ineffective counsel, mm. that sort of thing, and that was a no go. Right. So he's he's still in prison. That one didn't work. So he's trying this. We'll see. Yeah. Hopefully it doesn't doesn't go. Hopefully it doesn't work. Yeah. So our good doctor story. So the. I sometimes I can't find a good doctor that's like the same type of doctor. I usually try to if I can, and sometimes I can't, and yes. I'm always like, "Oh, I feel bad." But <laughs> this time I did. I was I love this story so much. This is the best hero story, yes, maybe that I've ever done. It's just because it's a, it's just adorable. It's so cute. Yeah. I love it. This is a really cute article from CheckupNewsroom.com, and so I guess it's some sort of like medical. I don't know if it's like a physician type place, like a blog or something, but such a cute story. So it starts out, I love the, this writer. I love good writing. Um, and this, that the author of this article is so good. Um, but they said, a jet explodes into flames. Dastardly villains capture a, a cook children's oncologist, take her away and tie her up at a nearby helicopter. Sounds like the bad, bad story, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it says, all hope seems lost until an urgent call is placed to a grade school in Grand Prairie, Texas on an otherwise ordinary Friday morning. So cute. Only one special person with superpowers can save us now. It's so cute. Super Aiden is his name. So adorable. Um, he's so cute. He's seven years old and he had been treated at this oncology clinic by um, by the oncologist that we're going to, that's our good oncologist. And so that's what this article is referencing. It's a little story um, about Aiden who wanted to be a superhero, and they just went, to, I mean, all out to give him this experience. It's through the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Yeah, it's and, incredible. And in the picture, there's, um, in the article, there's pictures. And I was mm-hmm. just really impressed with 
how far they really took this day for him. Me too. Me too. It's so funny. It's um, It says during these desperate times, and thanks to the careful planning, of course, of Make-A-Wish, make a he dons a superhero out- outfit to fight crime. The suit made from his own invention is equipped with laser beam glasses, propellers with flames on its back, claws, and bombs. So this is the cute little... Um, announcement that was made at the school. It says, good morning, Texas. We have some breaking news. Aiden and his classmates, oh, Aiden and his classmates here as they watch a video. So they're (laughs) watching the video at the same time. Villains have taken over the town. So far, villains have been reported at three locations around the area. Currently, Dr. Akers, that's our good oncologist, from Cook Children's Healthcare System is being held hostage. We need someone to rescue her so she can help more children. Our friends at Make-A-Wish North Texas told us they know of a brave, strong superhero that can help. Super Aiden, if you're watching this, your community needs you. It's time to suit up and save the town. I just love it. <laughs> oh, it's just, oh my goodness, so cute. So, he springs into action, of course, changes into his superhero gear. Uh, before he can save Dr. Akers, he has work to do. He begins his day rescuing his librarians from even more villains, and then he is whisked away to GameStop <laughs> headquarters. <laughs> but this is no time for games. That's because bad guys have made the mistake of holding all the games and staff hostage. Their evil plans are foiled once again by Super Aiden. So he doesn't have time for thank yous, though. Lauren Akers, MD, an oncologist at Cook Children's, needs him. A a police escort rushes Aiden to DFW Airport's Fire Training Research Center. This is unbelievable. (laughs) I can't believe they did this. In a limo, a superhero with class, it says. Then he's taken by an armored SWAT unit to the site of the fire. And there is literally a plane on fire, (laughs) fully, like, engulfed in flames. And Aiden gets to help put it out while safely in the truck, then rushes out of the truck and defeats Flame um, and then Howler, the villains that are holding his doctor hostage. So he unties her, rescues her to the cheers of onlookers, and even the bad guys have learned their lesson from Aiden and convert to good. <laughs> <laughs> so cute. <laughs> Oh, he's, it says, heck, they may even have some spaghetti and cake afterwards. <laughs> oh, and so it's, uh, of course, he gives him hugs and it says, you know, underneath this uh, superhero hero suit, he's still a seven-year-old boy. So um, he gives a press conference. The media in attendance have some really hard questions. They, uh, they said, tell us how you designed your costume. And he said, all by myself. <laughs> I just love the kids' honesty, you know, like they're just so... Say first thing that comes into their minds. I love it. It's so sweet. And the whole thing is just amazing. And what the reason, and this is a great story. And of course, it's the Make-A-Wish Foundation that that put all of this on. And that's an amazing um, organization, what they do for children um, and families to be able to give them experiences like this is just so wonderful. I love it. But what I loved uh, about this doctor, about the oncologist, is that really, when if you kind of read on down into the article, it says she is not the kind of person to really like all the attention to be on her. She's not like this kind of outgoing person who's going to be, you know, putting herself in the spotlight. She's very kind of reserved, and she just kind of likes to just do her job. And 
But because she really wanted Aiden to have this experience, she agreed to do it. And I just think she's such a good sport for doing that. It was probably really uncomfortable if she's that kind of person. Yeah. I know I would have been probably really nervous about all of it. And I think she was a really brave person for just stepping up and, you know, getting out of her shell and doing this for him. Because she's already done enough. She's, you know, just at her job, you know. (laughs) But she's willing to do this. She said that um, he's just a, a special kid, and she's always just enjoyed getting to know him and his family. They're all wonderful people. So she said that he's always been just a really good patient. Like, you would just not even know he was sick. So What a little trooper. Mm-hmm. Some some kids, I think, are just so resilient, um, you know, especially cr- chronic kids, you know. Um, I had a clinical rotation on on a more chronic floor for my peds rotation. And, but yeah, there was one little boy and he was just, you know, just a special, a really special little kid. And, and he did have a, a chronic illness, but it was just like, you wouldn't even know it. You know, I mean, he was just such a, a great little, great little guy. So I imagine that this kid is very similar and, and I'm, it's just so nice to be able to see that they get to do things like this. I agree. I, I love it. And I, I, I love that um, it sounds like everybody involved had a really nice experience. And I love the Make-A-Wish Foundation. And I just think it's great. I love the story. It makes me, it kind of, I, uh, the hero story that we do at the end or the good nurse or good doctor story is like, um, to me, helps to redeem, you know, uh, I because when you find these stories, it, how disheartening is it to find out people do stuff like this? And part of the the purpose of our podcast, there are lots of purposes. Um, the main thing is to kind of like give a space for nurses and talk about what we go through. And we do that with storytelling, you know, just kind of have the storytelling aspect of it, but uh, to shine a light on things that people are doing, bad and good. Yeah. But I like ending with the good yeah. stuff so that we kind of have that. Wash that, have that taste out of your mouth, <laughs> the first story, I'm the kind of, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm the kind of person, like if I watch it, I love watching scary movies, but if I watch a scary movie, like I got to watch something funny after. Oh yeah, <laughs> always follow up with a comedy in yeah. the same way. <laughs> yeah, at least like turn on a sitcom or something. Like I got to watch The Office mm-hmm. or something and get that out of my head. I, I love it. I like the uh, the adrenaline rush or, or whatever, like being scared. But yeah, I got to have something to kind of clear my head afterwards. Yeah. And I know you said you sometimes have a hard time finding a good story in the same like specialty area or category mm-hmm. that your your bad story is in. But I feel like for oncology, it had to be an easy one because, like you said before in the podcast, you know it really draws a certain type of people, nurses or doctors, I think, for this specialty. I, I really just think it's a special person that is able to to do this, to work on these floors. And, and they really do get to make a, a difference, a, a big positive difference, I think, in the lives of their patients. So I wasn't surprised that you found such a, a good one for, for the good story, for the good doctor, because I think the overwhelming majority of oncology nurses and doctors are are just overwhelmingly good good people altruistic people so i agree 100% the the oncology nurses on the oncology floor where i work are just phenomenal i cannot believe they're so passionate yes. about what they do it's a hard floor it's so hard it's so emotional what those patients have to go through and the 
they're so sick a lot of times. The, the, the treatment, you know, the interventions, the nursing interventions that you have to do. So they always just seem to be, and they get, they get to know their patients because a lot of times they're there for a long time or they come back, you know, and um, it's just, I feel like the patients sometimes when I was working on PCU, I just recently transferred to CVICU, but, um, and I guess this will happen on CVICU too, because I, you know, sometimes they'll be there because they're just a little sicker and they have to be there for a while. But then they, the doctors are want to get them up to the oncology floor as soon as soon as they can, right. and that's because those nurses know how to take care of those cancer patients. They know how to take care of them and their families, how to talk to them, and I think that the patients are more comfortable there. You know, and of course they're uh, immunocompromised, and a lot of times and they don't allow other patients that are, um, you know, that are in contact or whatever. And so it's a safer place for them to be right. also. And those nurses understand those interventions that they're doing. And it's just, um, it's a, it's a specialty. Yeah. And I appreciate those nurses so, so much. Yes. I really do. Yeah. Well, Sam, thank you so yeah. much for coming on. Thank you for having me. I really me. appreciate it. Yeah, this was great. I love doing it. And I'm not going to lie, this checked an uh, item off my bucket list to be on a podcast. So yay! <laughs> thanks for your help in that. <laughs> yes, I'm glad it was good nurse, bad nurse. Glad to have you. And you can come back anytime. It was really pleasant getting to do the episode with you. All right. Thanks, Tina. So I'm going to um, sign off, I guess, for you guys. And just remember, you can come and see us at goodnursebadnurse.com or you can find us on Instagram at goodnursebadnurse or Facebook at GNBN Podcast and be sure and send us messages. We want your stories, your hometown stories and your feedback, whatever you have that you can give us. And we also want you guys to remember that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse. (laughs) I feel like I should say good doctor too. (laughs) You guys be good doctors too. (laughs) 